In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to this week's Two Shrinks Pod. This episode's going to have a little bit of a different format to our usual shows. I'm heading off on a short holiday and neither Amy or I got the time this week to record a pod. So we thought we'd play you a talk that I gave at the Leukemia Foundation Day a couple of years ago. Leukemia Foundation Day is this day where a lot of presenters give talks about research into cures, into psychological issues and all sorts of other really, really interesting stuff. And I was very honoured to be asked to talk to a group of patients and family about recovering from cancer. So the, the title is that it's Your New Normal Post-Cancer Treatment. And it's all about the, some of the challenges that people face when being diagnosed, being treated for, and recovering from cancer. So this should be of interest to anyone who's had cancer, know someone who's had it. Also be interesting to, for people to listen to if you're interested in understanding how psychologists think and tackle complex problems that life throws up. Some of the core principles I talk about will be really relevant to most people as I talk about how to try and get the most out of the time we have. Before I start, I wanted to just say a quick word about the Leukemia Foundation and some of the famous work they do. Since 1975, the foundation has been committed to improving the survival of patients and providing some much-needed support. The foundation doesn't receive ongoing direct government funding and relies on the continued and generous support of individuals, corporate sponsors, to develop and expand its services. So the foundation is... Just such a great organisation. It provides a range of support services to all patients who had uh, with blood cancers, like through leukaemia and lymphomas and things like that, or other related blood disorders. And it provides these support services at no cost. The support can be offered over the phone, face to face, online, and depending on someone's geographical or individual needs. Support may include providing information, patient education seminars and programs, providing forum for peer support, consumer representation, practical assistance, accommodation, transport, and of course, emotion and supportive counselling. So if you or anyone you know has a blood cancer and would like to receive some support, you can call, eight, in Australia, you can call 1800 620 420. It's 1800 620 420. Or visit their website, which is just www.leukemia.org.au. You just Google Leukemia Foundation. If you or someone you know would like to support the Leukemia Foundation in raising some much-needed funds, then the number to call is 1800 500 088. So that's 1800 500 088. It's always the right time to donate to a cancer charity, so do consider that. One final thing, don't forget to subscribe to our show and leave a rating or a written review in iTunes. The more that people can rate our show and the more that people can actually write some reviews, the more exposure we get, and that means that more people can find and listen to our show. All right, enough of me rambling. You're about to hear a lot more of that. Uh, so let's get started. We'll see you next week. Good afternoon. Um, so I'm Hunter. Um, I'm not used to giving a talk on a podium, so um, just bear with me just for a little bit. So I got into cancer work because I did a doctorate in health psychology um, where I looked at um, psychological adjustment, how that influences information needs in lung cancer patients. So I did that through the, the Peter Mac. So um, 
the cancer just sort of been something that's been an interest of mine. Um, so what I thought, so this is this talks about a new normal post treatment, or the cheeky title is the how I learned to stop worrying and live my life. Um, so what I what I wanted to do today is just to cover the range of common problems that are experienced upon finishing cancer treatment, with a particular focus on anxiety, uh, and discuss personal change post cancer, and and ex existential issues. Um, this talk's going to be more about sort of more of a self-help kind of thing, rather than facts and figures. Um, I don't I don't work a lot with um, leukemia. I work predominantly with breast cancer and with uh, patients with colorectal um, and also brain tumors. Um, but uh, strong believer in that while there's unique parts, unique things that happen with each type of cancer. Uh, a lot of the psychological processes in recovery are very, very similar, um, and 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 so you can you should be able to take something away from today. Um, okay, so general framework for life post treatment. So I, as a psychologist, I get a lot of referrals uh, at the end of someone's cancer journey. So people kind of get all the way through their cancer treatment, and then they get referred to me because they've either crashed or because they're kind of, they haven't got a thousand medical appointments and they want to talk to somebody now, they feel, yeah, you know what, I can do this now. So, step one, really, is getting back to the life that you had prior to cancer. Essentially, you know, getting out again, getting fit again, eating again, seeing your friends, um, interacting with your family, okay. The problem with that is it's almost impossible to get back to exactly where you were before cancer. Things have changed um, for a whole variety of reasons which you guys probably know better than I. So step two is this process, psychological adjustment uh, to your life post-cancer. So this is really what I'm going to talk a lot about today. Um, the thing is you need to get part of the way through step one before you can really start to do step two. But um, uh, so you need to kind of be getting out and doing things before uh, that process can really start to uh, evolve. Right. Um, so recovery, getting your life back. The main task, like I was saying before, physically recover and to become active again. And I can't stress how important that is. Um, the thing is, it's important to do it at the right pace. So humans, we're really good at We usually have to do things really, really quick or really, really slow. It's really hard to kind of do it in the middle. It's hard to stand in the middle of a seesaw, and it's hard to do things at the right pace. But as I say to my clients, slow and steady wins the race. So this is not always a straightforward process. For many, anxiety peaks at the end of treatment uh, because of change in support. So you know, if you're going into therapy, you know, chemotherapy or radiotherapy every day or every week, and then you suddenly just don't have that anymore, that's a big change. Um, and the focus shifts from coping with treatment. So it's like, yep, I've just got to get through this. There's one more injection, one more treatment, one more X, Y, and Z. Um, we suddenly go shift from that to starting to think about the future. And that's when a lot of anxiety comes in. It's like, well, what happens is this treatment hasn't worked. Or, you know, they said it would work, but for how long? And all these questions which we've been sort of putting off can often come in. 
don't know if that's a familiar experience for anybody. But, um, depression, which is different from anxiety. So anxiety is fear and worry and panic. Depression is sadness and loss. Um, and uh, so anxiety is like uncertainty and depression is sadness and loss. Um, so depression is common post-treatment. And this is due to usually to do with losses that have occurred during treatment. So this can be changes to your body. This can be uh, sadness at seeing yourself or your family go through difficult times. Um, physical, emotional, social. It can be when people have thought that they could rely on, on certain friends and have been let down, so on and so forth. Um, okay. So common problems in this getting back phase, low motivation to be active. And motivation is one of the things that we see or is one of the key marker of depression. So someone's not motivated, they're not necessarily depressed, but they often can be. Um, and kind of have a bit of a radar out for that. Avoidance of situations or activities. So social activities, uh, going out, being intimate, uh, due to anxiety and fear of stigma. So a lot of conversations I have with my patients is about getting them to go out shopping again getting them to go out and see their friends again and get moving. Safety behaviours. So uh, this is a bit of a psych term, but safety behaviours are things that we do to uh, when we're anxious that help relieve our anxiety in the short term. So classic thing will be when I work with breast cancer patients, they'll always, every time they get in the shower, they'll always check for lumps in their breast. Or any time someone has an unexplained physical symptom in their body, they rush off to the doctor. And the problem with those kinds of things is that they um, actually maintain anxiety because we never learn to uh, let that anxiety sit and uh, go away. So um, body image issues, of course, if you have changes to your body, losing hair, other changes, surgery, that kind of stuff. Trauma symptoms is a whole other kettle of fish some people who go through um, cancer treatment can have can develop post-traumatic stress or almost um, post-traumatic stress. So this is a condition where you have intrusive thoughts about the cancer, nightmares, flashbacks, and avoidance of all things cancer. So that's a fairly serious condition. Um, it's not that common. Okay, fear of cancer returning. returning. This is a universal fear. If every cancer patient I've ever met has it, and it will never ever go away completely. Um, I'm sorry to say. But we can turn the volume down on that anxiety. We can reduce it um, if it's like a radio. So common triggers for an anxiety about cancer returning. Physical symptoms, as I said before. I know from having worked with cancer patients, every time I get an ache and pain, I think it's stage four cancer. And it's the same with with people with other stuff. So, oh, you know, I've got a sore elbow, you know, I wonder if it's come back and they realise, no, actually, I banged my elbow yesterday. Um, anniversary dates, so date of when you got diagnosed, date of when you started treatment, date of when you ended treatment, um, Christmas, all those kinds of things. Things which cause you to, to reflect on the past can trigger anxiety. Birthdays and getting scans and blood tests that kind of thing can really peak someone's anxiety. Um, okay. 
So what I say to all my patients is that it's okay to be anxious about cancer coming back to normal, 100% normal. And allowing ourselves to have emotions enables us to find strategies to, to sort out this anxiety and to seek support. So, because a lot of people feel that they shouldn't be anxious. I finished treatment, I shouldn't be anxious. Um, so first step in dealing with anxiety is to allow us to sit with it and then we can kind of resolve it. No rule, as I said, that you should be coping better. Um, it's one of the things I hear time and time again. Oh, I should be coping better. Um, and you can imagine that that's a, a lot of pressure to put on oneself. So anxiety is the same for causes avoidance and, and or safety behaviours. And these maintain the anxiety. And from a psychological perspective, you need to kind of challenge and change these. And then that will help anxiety go. Now, that's a real crash course in how to tackle this kind of stuff. Um, I don't expect that you'll just have a look at that slide and go, oh, cool, I can do this. It's, that's sometimes I spend many sessions doing, working with someone on that. Um, okay, this next thing is about changes in family dynamics. Okay, so during a period of treatment, it's helpful that the family reorganises itself, essentially. To, uh, to support and help the person with cancer. <coughs> the individual becomes a patient, the, the partner becomes a carer. It's obviously very, very helpful and important that that happens. Okay. But post-treatment, this dynamic changes and this, whenever there's change, it can be difficult to navigate for all parties. Okay. So the patient can often be um, held back by a well-meaning or protective family, um, or the family moves on but the patient doesn't, so, which is the kind of the reverse. So sometimes people are, you know, they're, they're, they're not letting me go out by myself, or you can kind of pick up in conversations like, are you able to go out by yourself at all at the moment? And they're, oh, no, my, my husband drives me everywhere. Okay, maybe you should try driving by yourself somewhere and see how that goes. And... and so anything that kind of, when someone kind of goes, oh, I'm not sure I could do that, that's when there's a lot of anxiety and that's when you want to kind of, as psychologists, we kind of work with people to try, try and challenge that. Um, and the family moving on, but the patient doesn't. So this is really, really easy to understand things. Like, it's over. We don't have to talk about it anymore. We don't have to deal with it anymore. It was awful. You know, um, you're finished treatment. Your hair's growing back. This is great. Um, but psychologically, the person hasn't moved on. Um, and, and that's kind of normal. So everyone adjusts at different paces to their own uh, traumas in their life or own problems in their life, if that makes sense. Um, okay. So why is there a new normal uh, after cancer or cancer treatment? Okay. So many physical impacts and psychosocial changes um, can occur during the period of diagnosis and treatment. And these require adjustment and recovery in their own right. Um, the thing about cancer is it brings its own special bag of issues that are more than the sum of multiple difficult, difficult experiences and during treatment, whatever. And there's something intrinsically different about cancer than, say, the head cold that I've had for last week or you know, chickenpox or something like that. At its core, cancer is life-threatening. 
And, it's, and it is this that alters our perspective on the world and on our own life. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of the psychological adjustment piece. Okay. So what I'm going to talk about here is a framework to understand this kind of thing. So this is about death anxiety. And I borrow very heavily from a author called Yalom. I'll give you the reference at the end of the, end of the talk. Okay, so Epicurus, who was a philosopher back centuries ago, believed that we all have an omnipresent fear of death. We always have it. And so Yalom, he says that uh, it's not easy to live every moment being wholly aware of death. It's like trying to stare at the sun. Right? We can only stand so much of it. Right? If you look at the sun for too long, you go blind. You can't do anything else. So what we do is we cope in life by avoiding thinking about dying. We pretend or act as if we will live forever, for a long period of time, and that we have control over death and dying. So what this does is allows us to go about our daily life. The problem is it means that we, we don't address our core fears about living, and it also means that we uh, put up with stuff in our life that perhaps we wouldn't if we knew time was short. Okay. So cancer, the way I view cancer is it's a blinding light. People who've completed cancer treatment have stared at the sun. They have been forced to look at death. They're forced to realise that their life is fragile, that it will end at some point. And as I'm sure some of you know, that's pretty terrifying. So it's this adjusting to the profound shock that their own life is fragile. Terrifying and usually stops us dead in our tracks. You know, how do you, you, you've kind of been trucking along, going, yep, yep, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm doing this stuff, and in 10 years' time I'm going to retire, or 20 years' time I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And then we suddenly realise that maybe that, that, that might not happen. Or... Um, Maybe there's other things that are more important. So, in my experience, most people don't emotionally process this completely until they've finished treatment. Some never uh, fully process it. And I certainly worked with a gentleman who, uh, sort of at the start of this year, worked with him for about 12, 18 sessions, I think, and he had had several bouts of uh, leukaemia. And, um, and he he wouldn't even want to talk to me about it, and even though that was years ago. Um, and it was, it was a lot of work just to kind of get him to talk about cancer or something. Okay, so cancer can also bring together, uh, bring to the surface some problems that have been there for a long time. So relationship problems, employment issues, so like unhappiness with, being, with the job that you're in, can often bring to light past trauma in someone's life. And a number of women I've worked with have uh, disclosed to me histories of, of traumatic events that they've never talked about before because they've kind of managed, managed to keep it all in. But the stress of a cancer diagnosis brings to the surface all the fragility in one's, in one's own life. So if you think about it, like you say, if you break your leg and then you fall over or you, you're in a car accident or something like that, that leg will probably break again on that weak spot 
where it was broken the first time. Is the kind of theory, if that makes sense. Okay. So, how do we deal with this? I'm reframing cancer as an awakening experience. Okay. So, staring, staring at death, staring at the sun, in this way brings into focus or into sharp relief where we're unhappy in our lives and what is important to us. Okay. In general, the greater the unlived life, the greater the anxiety about death, the greater the disturbance. So, death will always terrify us in some kind of way, but living our life and living an enriched life helps to lessen this fear and make us happier. So it's about helping us turn that volume down on that anxiety, if that makes sense. Okay. So it's all people following me so far? Yeah, group of yeah. a few nods. I know it's post-lunch and probably full of carbs and a little sleepy, but so this is the how-to bit. Right. So many of the ways that I do this uh, with people, some of these work, some of these don't always work. Three, I thought I'd just use three common ones, uh, talk about that, that I use with my clients. Okay. So I'll go through each one. So exploring your fears of dying, actually, let's talk about it. Let's actually look at that using the idea of regret and giving back. Okay. So, exploring your fears of dying. So, so uh, recently I was working with a guy in his 50s. Uh, unfortunately, he's got metastatic lung cancer, so, and he's quite depressed, quite unhappy, and he's obviously quite worried about what's going to happen to him in the future. So... Um, I was fairly direct with this gentleman. I said, well, what's upsetting uh, about being told that you've got cancer? Okay. Tell me I'm going to die from it. Now, this is not always the case. Some people say, well, I could die from it. That kind of stuff. But for him, that's what they said. So I said, well, what is it that scares you about dying? What is it that scares you about death? Let's, let's talk about this. So uh, we talked for a bit. The main thing he said was, you know, I'm concerned about other, how others are going to cope without me. I'm worried about my partner being all alone. My sister doesn't have much money. I come from a big family with lots of sisters, but this one particular doesn't. So kind of fairly, um, fairly understandable anxieties, I'd say. So uh, we talked about how, how he could address this kind of stuff. So practical strategies... He hadn't done his will, um, which is obviously quite problematic. Um, and for him, there was some anxiety around doing that because it meant that if I, did my if I do my will, then, then that means I I've given up and that, that means there's no more. But obviously, having that undone creates, it, it makes, it means there's open, open anxiety, open wound there. So we, we discussed completing his will and... I think one of the problems was he had to make some decisions in doing, you know, about where his money would go. Sharing his anxiety and testing it. I think that this is often one of the most useful strategies that you can do for yourself. I said, have you, have you talked to your partner uh, um, about how, how, you, how she's going to cope? Uh, how, what does she think? Does she know that you're worried about that? And the aim of facilitating that kind of discussion that's going to be helpful for him to work through and process. Um, and he, of course he had it. 
if you're anxious about something, you avoid doing it. And so we talked about, well, how could you go about asking, asking her? What could you say? Um, engaging in meaningful activities that had stopped because of the anxiety. So social contact for him is extremely important. I think he, I think he was working in the railroads or something, I can't quite remember. Um, and he had basically, throughout his cancer treatment, just stopped all social contact. Um, and so we talked about, well, maybe you should go see your workmates. Why don't you go and see them again? Um, there was some anxiety for him to go and do this, um, but around kind of not seeing them again and he'd have to talk about the fact he's not going to be around. But what would happen is he gets over that bump and then he's going to get a whole lot of love and support and that's going to be really helpful for him. So regret, so regret gets a bad name, but from a, as a therapist, I think it's actually quite useful, and individually, I think it's quite useful to think about. Okay, so, so two common hurdles to making change, this is if you're a cancer patient, or a family member, or just you know, Joe Blow off the street. One is we don't know what we want, and two is we know what we want, but we can't get started. So... One thing I always talk about is, and what I want you all to think about is, just stop for a second and think, think back through your life. Think about what do you wish you could have done? Think, just kind of get something in your head. What do you wish you could have done? Or what do you wish you maybe could not have done? There's a particular girl at school that you always wish you'd asked out on a date. Was it working a bit harder on an assignment or something? Was it taking a job, not taking a job, that kind of stuff? Pretty easy to think about a regret that come pretty quickly, yeah? Okay. So using this idea, think about the future. Cancer comes back in one year's time, five years' time. What would you regret not doing? What would you have to do to live your life without regret? How could you do that? And what changes would you have to make? This is a question that I find particularly powerful and usually people find that quite difficult to answer. Other times people go, it's this. I definitely would like to uh, do X, Y and Z. And so this is about meaningful living and choosing what is uh, meaningful but also on the top of the pile. I don't know if you're anything like me but I've got lots of things that I feel I should be doing the entire time. And it's very difficult to prioritise that. So we often just watch a bit of TV and get some takeout or something like that. And so uh, therapists, we use this kind of discussion to help motivate people on to kind of highlight where, what is really, really important to them rather than just making sure you go to the dentist and your taxes done, something that's actually meaningful in your life. Because if it's important to you, then you're more likely to do it from a practical motivation perspective. Um, okay. Regret in living well. So this is one way in which you can identify how you want to live your life. And we to to live a meaningful life we have to get past stumbling blocks of anxiety or doubt or low confidence or lack of resources. You know, not not with everything, but if you really want to do something, there's often a way to do stuff. Um, 
often a way to kind of get some version of what it is you'd really want to do. Okay. If we're going to die, then how or why should we live? I guess is the existential question here. What is important to you? What do you want to do? What does the inner child in all of us want to do? What does that little boy or little girl, what do they like to do? Um, and then could you go about doing that? Could you want, is there something which, that you've always wanted to do but you never got to do? Um, and it could be really, really uh, embarrassing. I sometimes go and buy little Star Wars figures. I don't know, there's something about that that really highlights, yes, we've got a fan over here, good. Uh, that, that really tickles that little boy inside of me, right? And that kind of thing, you know, maybe it's learning how to surf, maybe it's um, writing a book, maybe it's seeing a whole lot of things in the world, but listening to that inner voice, that inner child, difficult to do, but when we do, then we start to move forward and be happier, if, that, if, if that's kind of clear. Okay. Now, when I have this discussion with people, they often go, oh, bucket list. Right? Let's have a bucket list. It's a little, slightly different to a bucket list. Okay? So, the aim is to live well and to be living a meaningful life. This is important to a bucket list. I'm not opposed to a bucket list at all. So, a bucket list is a list of things that you want to do before you die. Right? That can be a fun thing to do, and certainly I've worked with some people, and that was a motivating thing for them to do. This woman... 38, 39, uh, breast cancer. She had three kids. I started talking about this thing. She said, I really want to go and play paintball. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, but okay, that's good. How much would paintball cost? Who could you do it with? Well, it suddenly becomes a practical thing. When would you be able to do it? And then you can have these discussions. Oh, no, it's a bit stupid. Well, who would you be able to do it with? And suddenly you can start problem solving in that kind of way. Okay, so... The thing about a bucket list, and where I kind of urge caution, is that it's problematic and engenders what Kubler, Anne Kubler-Ross calls bargaining. Now, so some of you may know of Anne Kubler-Ross. She wrote a book, a very seminal book called um, On Death and Dying. She talked about five common uh, groups of emotions that occur in people who are terminally ill. So denial, um, denial anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Very kind of common things. You'll hear them talked about a lot. Bargaining is if I do X, then I'll be happy. So usually this comes in I've got a grandchild and I, I've, she's six and I really want to see her turn eight. And that's, that will be the, that will make me happy. And you know, I want to live till that thing. <coughs> Sounds good. Problem is that the day after that child turns eight, they come and go, I've got a grandson. And they, I want to see that grandson turn. And so what happens is this is kind of this bargaining that if this happens, then I will be happy. And at some, it's, at some level, that's actually not going to um, eventuate, right? Or that, that happiness is not going to persist for a long period of time. And obviously, what I'm trying to do here is help people live a happier life for a long, long period of time. So the equation, like as I said here, is becoming unrealistic. It's rare that happiness lasts for long. So what I sort of say, doing X makes me happy, is a more realistic approach. Um, so living your life rather than achieving one thing. The distinction is made clear. Okay. 
rippling. So the idea of throw a rock in a pond, ripples out. Okay. So leaving behind something from your life, some experience, some tray, a piece of wisdom, guidance, virtue, comfort that passes on to others, either known or unknown. So this idea of being more than just who you are at a given time. So if you have a belief that life is meaningless because it's transient, so we suddenly when we face death, we kind of go, oh God, well life's, you know, I'm going to die someday, and that means, you know, what does life actually mean? You know, it's meaningless, I'm not, I'm not going to be here for a long period of time. That belief is countered uh, by knowing that we're having an effect on others. Knowing that we will live on or that something that we have done uh, influences other people. Um, and that can be quite a powerful thing. So this is why you see many ex-patients volunteering in some kind of way. Usually when you talk to cancer volunteers around hospital, they go, oh, you, know, you, you ask them how you're going, they say, I get so much out of it. I think I get more out of it than the patients do. That kind of thing. Um, now, I'm not advocating that you should all go out and join a cancer society and volunteer. Far from it. What um, it, This rippling idea, if you're going to go and do it, doesn't have to be cancer-related. In some respects, I would actually maybe urge that you try something that's not cancer-related, something that is part of you, that, that was part of you before. Because... It helps us move on from cancer. I'm not saying that cancer volunteers haven't moved on, but um, about growing, if that kind of makes, if the dis distinction is there. Okay. So I thought I'd give you some examples of some people I've worked with in the past. Um, so yeah, some breast cancer and some colorectal patients. So a 38-year-old, um, she had breast cancer. She was from a um, she changed jobs at the end of it, end of her treatment. She's like, you know what, I really hate my job. Really became really, really obvious to her that she just couldn't stand it anymore. And because we kept talking about it, I said, you know, you realise we talk about the job more than we talk about the cancer. Um, and she also started being much more assertive to her husband, pulled him into line, made him pull, pull his socks up a bit more. And things, I think he found it a bit more challenging than she did, obviously. Um, but things are much better for her now. 39-year-old, uh, um, she returned to work. Um, she's a nurse, and she's got a much better and much more assertive relationship with her partner, and she decided that she wanted to go back and study. So we had this long conversation about going back to work. It's like, well, what do I do now? And I said, well, what does you and the child want? What would you like to do? She said, I'd like to study, but it seems stupid because... They told me I've got a high risk of recurrence. I said, well, what's stupid about that? How would you like to live? She said, yeah, no, actually, I think I really want to do this. I really want to go back and study. 50-year-old uh, with colorectal cancer. Okay. So this is a woman. She had a whole lot of other medical problems. So she improved her diet. She lost about 10 or 15 kilos. Um, she's gone away much more, uh, just down to a shack down on the beach, which... It's quite good. And she's got a much better, a much more even relationship with her family. She's very complicated family dynamics, unfortunately. Um, but she's much more getting what she needs rather than letting people walk all over her. Um, the last one, a 75-year-old woman with colorectal cancer. 
she gardens a lot more. She really sort of shut down after a cancer treatment. She came to me at the end of cancer treatment and was, uh, I should be coping better, you know, I should be doing this, should be doing that, not really doing anything. Um, so gardening a lot more, we talked about allowing herself to relax. And she grew up in Africa, you know, 70, 65 years ago. So fascinating woman to talk to. Um, and she decided to write a book on on her life in cancer, so uh, in Africa, so that she can kind of let people know what it was like. Personally, I would like to just to sit and talk to her for an hour about her experiences as a nurse working in Africa and all this kind of stuff. Um, so absolutely fascinating. It's a really interesting thing, and she's getting a lot of meaning out of it. And she connects with her family with it and talks to her family about these things. And, and so you can sort of see the positive, uh, meaningful aspect of this really, really helping to cure that or counter that anxiety. Okay. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I had a clip here that I was going to play, but we, uh, audio, uh, some technical problems meant that we didn't quite get to it. But it was a clip from a, a movie where this physician, a documentary, this physician was talking about uh, working with cancer patients. And it, the, the quote runs something along the lines of that he liked working with uh, cancer patients and, and other people because what you see is transformation. You see people transformed by the experience and that post, post these things they often live their life uh, without so much of the bullshit. With the, the volume in their life is kind of turned down and, and so this, this transformation can come from illness, come from tragedy, um, come from revelation, that kind of stuff. So he says it much more eloquently than I. But. Okay, how are we going for time? What time do we finish? Quarter to we finish. Um, I've got a few more slides. I might just whip through them, and then we can have some. If you want to ask me any questions, you can. Um, so these are just. This is where I'm going to be a little bit controversial, maybe a little bit challenging. These are just a couple of observations from my clinical work and from the literature about common things that cancer patients say or believe. Okay? These beliefs are beliefs are really, really understandable. So if you have any of these, I'm not berating you for them, but they're really, really understandable. But ultimately they're unhelpful um, and untrue and it's helpful to kind of have them challenged. Right. My favourite one, self-blame. I caused my cancer. I was stressed last year and that is why I got my cancer. <coughs> I've brought this on myself. Okay. Seems particularly prevalent in breast cancer patients. I'm not so sure about leukemia patients. Um, the good news is, lots of research has been done. There's no evidence uh, that says that psychosocial factors like stress, depression, or personality traits uh, play a role in the development of cancer. So we don't see groups of highly stressed individuals then developing cancer. We see Groups of highly stressed individuals having problems with chronic heart disease, but not with cancer. Okay. So uh, it's quite a common psychological process to attribute a cause to something that is random or that has no apparent cause. Okay. It allows us to feel more in control, even if the way we do that is to blame ourselves. Okay. So it's like, it's like well, how can this happen to me? What is it? I must have caused it. Now, and you can see that that guilt and that blame can make us feel really, really bad, but helps us to put a random event 
uh, it helps to kind of quell that death anxiety that I was talking about. But like I was saying, it's unhelpful, leads to guilt, and can often lower an individual person's um, efforts to help themselves with on depression. Okay. My attitude influences my survival. This is a really commonly held belief. Okay. So that we've got to be positive, we've got to have a fighting spirit, and that this will improve my likelihood of survival. So it sounds really, really appealing. Okay. They did find, I think it was back in the early 80s, uh, a small set of studies where they found with breast cancer patients that showed a survival benefit of people who had a fighting spirit. So obviously this gets published, um, believing that we can control something like cancer by controlling just the way we think or our emotions. It's really, really appealing. Who wouldn't want that? Right? Unfortunately, a whole lot of studies have failed to find this association. Okay. So what I say to my, I say to my patients, well, it might, but the evidence so far doesn't really support it. So in the way I kind of come out of saying, we know feeling like you have to cope and be positive can often increase the burden that we feel. And uh, that is usually not that helpful, makes us feel anxious, makes us feel sad. It's like, oh, I should be coping better, I should be coping better. I'm not really sure about that. Um, okay. The last one, coping, as I think I've said about a thousand times already, but this thing of like, I should be coping better. There's something wrong with me if I can't cope with cancer or chemotherapy. I should be feeling better than I do. So this is a very, very common response that I see in cancer patients. I see in all sorts of people across the lifespan with and without cancer. People feel like they're failing. Um, and this is usually really common in people who are self-reliant self-sacrificing, so putting other people's needs first, or perfectionistic. Um, so mothers who cope with other people's problems and never have a time to look after themselves. They often feel this kind of way. Um, like I said, no rules, someone should be coping. It's normal to experience difficulty when facing a disease that's life-threatening. Um, and so believing we have to cope, not reducing our workload and making efforts to relax and not making efforts to relax only adds to the stress that we feel. So if you allow someone to feel stressed, you allow someone to reduce their workload, allow someone to relax, then they feel better emotionally. That's something I hope you kind of take from this. Um, okay, last couple of slides. So suggestions, uh, when you're ready, see a psychologist to help process the changes and help or help you over the bumps in the road. Maybe you're kind of processing it yourself, but you might want to have someone to help you navigate the change. This might be straight away. This might be later on. Okay? The important, time, important thing to do is to go to a psychologist when you're ready. Okay? Um, and if you're not sure, talk about it with somebody and, and help that decision to be made. Um, you can seek counsel out from friends and family if you don't want to see a psychologist. But... Um, that kind of thing can be good to do. Talk about and process it. There's something that happens when you talk to somebody that gets the thoughts from here and they put them out here and then we engage a different part of our brain and suddenly things, we can process that in a different kind of way. <coughs> I can't give you a more scientific explanation than that. Live life, um, so engaging in enjoyable activities and be wary of being caught in a depressive spiral. So, three books, uh, three references. The Human Side of Cancer. Now, if you've not read this, 
and you're going through treatment at the moment, uh, I'd recommend buying it. Um, you'd be able to pick it up for about 10 bucks on Amazon. Um, by Holland and Lewis, Jimmy Holland is an American psychiatrist. She is the mother of psycho-oncology. She started the field of psychologists and psychiatrists working in oncology. So it's got a couple of really good chapters on different phases of treatment and post-treatment, pre-treatment, um, all this kind of stuff. Staring at the Sun, this is one of my favourite books and this is a lot of where I've talked from today, by Yalom. Uh, it's a really good self-help book. It's not cancer-specific, um, but it's, it's a very, very good book. The last one is Reinventing Your Life. Now, this is, if you've gone through something and you've gone, you know, well, look, there's a few things in my life that I really want to sort out. You know, I, I, I know that I put people's needs second, I know I have a fear of abandonment, or I've got these really high unrelenting standards, all this kind of stuff, then then go and have a look at that book and maybe buy it. That's a bit more of a serious self-help book. So that would be probably the one that would be a bit iffy about you just buying willy-nilly. The other two, go for it. Um, that kind of makes sense. Um, and that's all I've got to say, so thanks for listening. Um, and if you've got any questions, email me. So that's the talk. I hope you found it interesting. If you are interested in a copy of the slides that I talked from, you can email us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. Or if you've got any other questions, comments about our show, you can email us on that email. Or you can also check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com. Nice and easy. Don't forget to subscribe and rate our show. We will be back uh, in about a week and we will see you soon.